0: Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at TakingStockNT. Now, it's not easy being green, as the bank's green pledges came under scrutiny at COP26. We'll hear from the Financial Times about where the book will stop for putting the planet before profit. And learning from others, the Australian ambassador to Ireland will explain how our two countries are collaborating on climate action. And finally, bored, lonely, angry, stupid. We'll hear how our feelings and our emotions have been twisted by technology ever since they were invented. But to start us off today, we're joined now from the COP26 conference from Glasgow by Gillian Tett from the Financial Times. Gillian is chair of the Financial Times editorial board and she's editor at large in the US. Gillian, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome.
1: Well, great to be on the show and I'm actually talking from the conference centre where COP26 negotiations are going on all around me. So excuse the noise.
0: (laughs) No, we can certainly get a flavour of the atmosphere there. Now, COP26 is a big global diplomatic effort to operationalise the aspirations around the Paris climate agreement as we know but targets are absolutely nothing if they're not funded and paid for by someone. Gillian you were moderator of some of the finance sessions during the week which looked at the investment landscape and also multilateral development. Um, Some of the figures were eye-watering this week. Janet Yellen putting the cost of climate action uh, at about £100 can I first start by asking you a fairly obvious question? How important is finance in the ambition to transition to a lower carbon society and a global level?
1: Well, this is COP meeting is absolutely fascinating because the money men and women, as it were, the bankers, the central bankers, the financiers, have never been out in force before at a finance uh, at a COP26 or COP meeting at all. Basically, it's been dominated by the environment ministers and by green activists, But this year, the money men and women are absolutely in town big time. Um, I was chatting to Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, yesterday myself, and she told me that no US Treasury Secretary has ever been to a COP meeting before. Um, Now she is here. And the reason for that is very simple, that unless you can find a way to finance the transition, nothing is going to happen. And trying to get meaningful action against climate change right now is going to require not just money going into the new areas like renewable um, energy, but also being pulled out of the industries which are polluting the world right now like fossil fuels
0: yeah um so do you think in that sense the the, that cop 26 has been a game changer if you like the fact that it has had specific work streams that go beyond the environment and has had finance and transportation and energy specific sectors is that a game changer you've obviously attended a lot of these do you think that this one is different
1: I'm very wary of saying right now it's a game changer in execution yet, because what is certainly a game changer so far is aspiration. Mm. We've never had 450 of the world's biggest financial institutions coming together. They've got $130 trillion worth of assets and saying that they want to change direction. Mm. Um, It's a bit like someone sitting in the car and actually plugging in a whole new destination into their GPS system and saying, I want to go there. So the fact they're even saying they want to change direction is striking. But, and there's always a big but, Mm. just like with a GPS system, you need to then work out how it's actually going to take you on the journey. What's the route? And we don't yet know what the route is going to be in detail. And everything now depends on whether that route looks credible or not.
0: And some of the key players there are obviously the banks and the financial institutions. And and they came under a lot of scrutiny this week as well. They received quite a bit of criticism during the conference for for greenwashing. But I've heard you speaking on this issue. You think that 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 might be a good thing, that the greater scrutiny might signal that they're actually being held to account on sustainable development in ways they might not have been held to account in the past on, say, things like regulation.
1: Well, here's the really interesting thing about greenwashing. Um, There's certainly a lot of concern about greenwashing right now. That's partly because of the dramatic commitments that the banks and financial groups are actually making. Mm. It's also because the stakes are so high. Mm -hmm. So in the past, when a few do-gooding pension funds or Scandinavian investment groups were saying they wanted to be green, the reality is no one actually cared.
2: Mm.
1: Now people really do care. And so they're looking at what the big financial institutions are doing with tremendous amount of detail and determination to work out whether it's real or not. So in some ways, it's almost a backhanded compliment, if you like, for the zeitgeist shift that's going on. People care about it now. And on top of that, we're also getting some really important changes in the accounting um, frameworks and in terms of what regulators and central bankers are doing to scrutinize financial companies, which is simply adding to the pressure to try and have more transparency.
0: Yeah, uh, there might be a more audited system uh, in, in the longer term on this and one of the other things that, that arose quite frequently at the, the conference was this fact that there's waves of investment going into ESG or environmental, social and government investment. Can you tell us a little bit about what ESG actually is and how important that has become to companies to, as part of their own asset design?
1: Well, I set up at the Financial Times um, back in 2019, a newsletter called Moral Money, which looks at ESG. And to be perfectly honest, when I created it, I didn't actually know whether there'd be that strong reader demand. Mm. In fact, reader demand has exploded. And, you know, I'd love to think that's because I was a genius in terms of what I'm writing. But I think the reality is, it's because actually people really care about this now. You're seeing investors putting a growing proportion of their assets into ESG ventures, You're seeing a number of big banks and other companies which serve investors saying, if I don't have ESG products or an ESG slant to what I'm doing, um, I'm not gonna have a business. Mm. So right across the board, you're seeing this dramatic zeitgeist shift. And you can sit there and say, well, actually history always goes in cycles and it's fashionable now, maybe it'll go out of fashion soon. It's possible. But actually, I think there's much more of a fundamental shift going on that people realize that you can't just ignore the environment from your economic models or for your balance sheets because guess what it matters
0: yeah and that's the correlation between the investment piece and going green then makes good business sense as well as environmental sense but one of the observations that you had was that we tend to focus maybe a bit too heavily on the financial and even the environmental side of the transition but if we lose sight of the social justice solutions we might be failing in a different way can you talk to us about that
1: Well, one of the messages that I tried to deliver from the um, plenary platform yet on Wednesday with the finance ministers and others was that we need to have really two things um, which make ESG work. We need to have a sense of execution, i.e. it has to be actually implemented. It can't just be aspiration. And we also have to keep sight of this issue of equity because, um, you know, the Gilets jaunes protests in Paris a few years ago showed what happens if you suddenly hike Mm. fuel prices, say, It's the poor people who suffer and you spark populism and political protest. And unless you're mindful of the social consequences of what's going on, you could have a very nasty backlash which would actually derail the whole ESG and climate change movement or anti-climate change movement, which would end up costing us all.
0: Yeah, and Macron definitely learned the hard way that making even small changes uh, can have huge political repercussions. Just talking about that um, mix of public and private investment, that's a big question now, isn't it? It's certainly looking pretty obvious that... uh, private investment and, and the role of companies is going to play a big, big part in the transition. Even Alok Sharma um, acknowledging that there is going to have to be substantial investment, but that brings with it a, a more governance issues, doesn't it? Could you, could you talk to us about what transpired there on the private investment side?
1: Well, there's going to have to be government money used to finance a transition. There's going to have to be a lot of private sector money as well, because there simply isn't enough taxpayer money to fund us that's the reality. So somehow you've got to unlock all of the savings that we collectively as a society have in our banks and our asset managers and our insurance companies and so on. Now, there's a the whole ways, different ways that you can do that. Um, I talk, like to talk about the pot and the plumbing. So you need to have a pot of assets that can be potentially deployed for this, and that's public and private sector money. But then you need the plumbing to make sure that that money goes to where it's actually needed. Mm. And the plumbing is very, very tricky. So just to give you one example, one of the really big things that needs to happen now is to increase what's called blended finance. Those are projects where you can have a public sector guarantee um, providing comfort for private sector investors to pull money in, and yet you're using a lot of private sector money as well to actually get stuff done. Um, Now, blended finance sounds very boring to most people. In fact, I often joke, it's like the spinach of the financial world. Um, You know, financiers know vaguely it's very good for them. They don't really like to talk about it because it's so darn unappealing. But the reality is that it's these kind of technical, boring, spinach-like issues in finance that are going to matter enormously Mm. in terms of whether we get the plumbing right or not. It really is now, in some ways, down to the geeks, not just the science geeks to tell us about climate change, but the financial geeks to work out how to get that plumbing correct.
0: Yeah, very often it's the finance where the rubber hits the road. Um, In, in your view, did COP26 make a difference in relation to changing the landscape in, in a significant way to improve or in fact to accelerate investment in low carbon infrastructural development?
1: The only honest answer right now is we just don't know mm. what the final outcome of COP26 is going to be. I think there's a very good chance and it's rising that we're going to see a huge amount of money going into decarbonisation in the coming years partly as a result of COP26, but the direction that we're trying to travel on is now pretty clear. As I say, the GPS has been set in a Mm. certain direction. Just about everyone in the metaphorical car, whether it's the banks, the insurance companies, the asset managers, the corporate world, kind of agrees about where they're trying to head. The question though now is can they actually plot a journey together that looks credible and effective?
0: So my final question is a slightly political one. Has, has this event been the global moment that Boris Johnson was hoping for to present UK as leaders in this climate action race?
1: I think in many ways, COP26 has been pretty good for the British. Mm. Um, it's partly because the weather in Glasgow has been entirely unusual and it's actually been sunny, which was against all the forecasts. Everyone came braced for nonstop gloom. And, you know, I like to think that's quite a good, you know, omen for the future, perhaps. Um, But it's also because actually the British have managed to corral quite a lot of action in terms of the private sector and bringing them on board. What has not happened, though, and this really is a problem, is any meaningful concessions on the part of the Chinese, Mm. um, any meaningful leadership role by the Americans and any massive breakthrough of the sort that we actually had in Paris all those years ago. You can sit there and say that's because unfortunately the world is so different now in geopolitical terms you have a lot of u.s chinese rivalry and neither side is going to suddenly rush forward you can sit there and blame it on the americans having all these endless domestic political dramas you can say actually the easy lifting is being done it's now the heavy lifting it's going to matter enormously and you've got the middle east and russia and brazil and others in a pretty truculent position. truculent or you can say, actually, the British haven't got enough stature on the world stage to act as ringmaster. They've been trying to herd cats, but not very effectively. The honest answer is I'm not quite sure which of those explanations is true. They're probably all true. They're probably. But certainly, you know, in terms of government action, it hasn't been as inspiring as people would have hoped
0: maybe it's because um, the details are always far less interesting than big global ambitions and that's why um, this may not be huge in that sense but it is certainly suffering from an absence of some of the major players it's clear listening to you Gillian that private enterprise has a huge role to play in the success of failure when it comes to climate action and it seems that private industry is going to play a far greater role uh, than the government when it comes to investments. But governance, as I say, is going to become really uh, an important part of the discussion on this in the future. Gillian, thank you so much for taking the time to join us live from COP today. And we look forward to having you back again soon. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. I'm joined now by Gary Gray, who is the Australian Ambassador to Ireland. Ambassador, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us.
2: Mandy, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, Australia is on track to meet its 2030 Paris target because of significant government investment in renewable energy. They've driven down their carbon emissions by almost 20% since 2005. And we're going to hear what we can learn from them. But first, Ambassador, can I discuss the issue of your moving to Ireland? You first took up this role in the summer of 2020. It must have been very challenging with COVID restrictions, etc. How have you found living in Ireland and working here in, in a pandemic?
2: Mandy, it's, it's beautiful and perfect and the whole world's had the pandemic so there was no place you could go to hide and being in Dublin, being in Ireland, being able to get around Ireland has been absolutely fantastic. Pippa and I and our little dog Ted, we've enjoyed every minute of being here and we'll continue to enjoy it for the next three years.
0: That's great because Ireland and Australia have really strong connections going way back with our people. Um, but what are your ambitions for growth and cooperation in the future between us?
2: I think there's a lot of really productive ground for both cooperation and growing commercial opportunities too. I, I think the first cooperation will come on the many areas where climate change affects both of our countries, there's some incredibly terrific cooperation taking place. Mandy, in electricity transmission, there are regular meetings that happen between our electricity management organisation, AEMO, and Airgrid to talk about how you how you switch complicated electrons like those that come out of wind-driven turbines into a stable but under-stress system uh, where you have electrons generated by more conventional means. So that's a really technical, sophisticated area of cooperation. that Mandy also grows out of the fact that, you know, there's a little Irish company down in Cork that has got two absolutely massive renewable uh, facilities in Australia. Between those two facilities, they generate over 800 megawatts of electricity, You know, the biggest power station in Ireland is about 900 megawatts. Mm. And so to have a couple of renewables across our continent of that scale is just, it's it's an absolutely clear demonstration of cooperation and confidence Mm. between our two countries. It's enjoyable to watch. And an important part of what we do,
0: yeah. And you were impressed uh, by the ambition that's set out in Ireland's Climate Action Bill, which was passed by the Oireachtas earlier this year. And as you say, there were already aligned on some pretty significant projects and and cooperating on those. But what are the future possibilities with Ireland and Australia working together specifically on that climate change issue? Because. Your country has been very successful in driving down their own emissions. So, what do you think were the key determinants in making that progress in Australia?
2: The first one is land use, Mandy. We are able to engage in massive, wide scale land use changes. So, effectively, reforestation. The next area was to be closing coal fired power stations. So, there is no coal fired power station operating in South Australia anymore. Uh, There are none in Tasmania. There will be no new coal-fired power stations built and coal-fired power stations literally are being turned off as we speak. And so making the hard transition out of old-style energy generation into distributed grids uh, and into renewable generation is or has been extremely important to driving down the carbon footprint of Australia, which has now, just a little bit of an update, it's now just over 20% to 208 of our 2005 number with continuous economic growth throughout that period.
0: Yeah, one of the the reasons why I suppose Australia has been successful in developing the renewable energy has been that you're blessed with the sun in a way that we're not blessed here in Ireland, sadly. But we do have natural assets that are similar to the ones in Australia. We've got wind and we have waves. What advice would you give to the government and indeed agencies here who are trying to attract more companies uh, in that renewable space to
2: Ireland? Um, You know... Mandy, I look at Ireland and I see a sophisticated governance and financial investment framework uh, that's working globally. So I don't think there are any real lessons from Australia. There are lessons that we can learn from each other. Uh, Each country gets something right and each country uh, can learn from the other. Let's just put it that that way. Uh, And so when I look at, say, the very successful investment by DP Energy into uh, South Australia, Mm. into renewables. There are two things that come from that. One is the largest single mining operation in Australia now has 50% of all of its electricity out of those renewables in Port Augusta. Mm. And DP could build those renewables because there was a stable and understandable approvals process. So no debate and no discussion around the windmills that DP needed to establish in Port Augusta. That certainty is really, really important because it allowed DP to scale the nature of its generators to the wind pattern in the northern Spencer Gulf. And you don't really know what the wind pattern is until you do the study. Mm. And so there's a time lag that's implicit in how you invest in this large infrastructure and the time lag uh, is one where companies are genuinely exposed to the regulatory environment changing. So what we have learned is a stable, predictable regulatory environment where companies can understand the nature of their investment and then tune their investment to any changes or nuances that occur while they understand their technology platform better.
0: Mm. I think that's the thing about energy investment it's such a long term um, commitment from companies it, that it does require that regulatory certainty uh, for sure and we've seen evidence of, of how if it doesn't, if it if it isn't available how companies can leave we, we've seen that happen just this week with the departure of Equinor now Ambassador you're a former um, Minister for Energy so undoubtedly you've been watching on um, at COP26 Um Do you detect that this is a game changer, that there's been a tangible difference in global cooperation in relation to how we tackle the serious issues that are facing us on
2: climate? I really do feel that. um, And I feel uh, that governments themselves, and we've seen it here in Ireland, uh, governments themselves want to be doing the right thing, but the right thing can create stresses and pressures and difficulties in communities because we're changing how we do what we do. But the case is now unanswerable and governments have been working together to ensure that that Paris target, the 1.5 target, remains in reach. That's really what we're about. You know, it's not, goodness me, if you pull all this stuff together, we'll keep the temperature increase at less than three. Our Paris objective was to keep that 1.5 in view and not let it slip. And the good thing is countries are coming to the game and they're bringing their best possible suite of policy choices. That's a good thing.
0: It certainly is. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking with Ambassador Gary Gray, who is the Australian Ambassador to Ireland Ambassador, how has COVID-19 been managed in Australia compared to here in Ireland? And are there lessons that we can learn from each other in terms of who opened up the borders and how we managed our vaccination campaigns?
2: Well, there are lessons that we are actively learning in Australia from Ireland. Mandy, let's not forget uh, that Bloomberg rated Ireland as being the number one country in the world uh, for how it's put together it's living with COVID strategy. There are no easy answers here. and in, in some occasions, those things that we think we've got right become a problem. Mm. A, a great example of that in Australia is in the state from which I hail, Western Australia, there are currently three cases of COVID. Uh, one is in isolation, one is in hospital, uh, and one of them is uh, in quarantine. Now, Mandy, we have public hospitals in Western Australia that have never seen a single COVID case. Mm. And so there's great learning from Ireland, uh, which is not just around the terrific rollout of the vaccine program. It's around how we manage cases, how we manage patients, because Western Australia still has closed borders.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And Ireland has opened its borders and had great courage to ensure that its borders have worked in the interests of families, communities, business and people movements. Australia has pursued a closed border policy and, Mandy, that's been incredibly tough mm. on we, We've talked to families and tried to help families who've been at the really hard end of those decisions and our heart goes out to them the whole time Um So, yeah, we can learn from each other. None of us have got it all right. And fortunately for the people of Ireland and Australia, neither of us have got it all wrong either.
0: Yeah, that was my next question, really, was about those relationships that we have at a family level between Australia and Ireland. And has a significant amount of your time since you've arrived here been in dealing with those interactions and trying to help people who are either getting from here to Australia or vice versa?
2: You know, Mandy, I lead an absolutely terrific team here at the embassy, Um, and Tim, my deputy head of mission, and our consular team have been working constantly at this. Uh, We all uh, get our shoulders to the wheel to make sure that those Australians who have been stranded by Australian government policy are as strongly supported and well-informed as they can be. But You don't do that on your own. You need a great team. And my team here at the embassy have been absolutely wonderful.
0: So uh, finally, Ambassador, I just wanted to turn to something that's a more international flavour. In the news recently, we saw that the US-UK-Australian alliance on um, the submarine contract has caused more than a bit of upset in France. Um, And the repercussions, I suppose, are, are bubbling along with Macron and his ongoing um, rouse with the British government. Do you see that this new relationship is a shift in in the world order as we know it before?
2: No, no I don't. It's simply a change in the propulsion system uh, of a submarine. Um, I do fully accept the hurt that this has caused in France and, and that is clear and that has been made clear to the world. Uh, but at the same time, what the world is understanding is the strategic choice made by Australia is because of our appreciation of very changed strategic circumstances in our part of the world. We think it's about our part of the world and we think it's about the responsibility and accountability that we have as a nation to take our responsibility seriously and that's what we've done.
0: Well, there's certainly much food for thought there and indeed, Ambassador, we can learn much from Australia about how we in Ireland can maximise our own natural resources. We wish you all the best with your mission in Ireland and I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. That's Gary Gray, Australia's Ambassador to Ireland. Thank you for being with us today. "This is Mandy Johnston, with you on News Talks Taking Stock. I'm joined now by Susan Matt and luke Fernandez. Guys, you're very welcome to the program, thanks for joining us." Thank you. Thank you. Now Susan and Luke are a married couple and they are respectively professors of history and computing at Weber State University. They've written a fascinating book that asks the question has technology changed our emotion in their book Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid and they single out six aspects of the human experience for scrutiny. Firstly guys I think it's important to point out that this is not a self-help book to stop you from using your smartphone or social media outlets too much. Uh, It's a full-on assessment, isn't it, of technology and how it's changed us fundamentally across a number of centuries. Could, could you tell us, firstly, what led you to undertake this project and what the project itself actually involved?
3: I think it was about uh, 12, 12 years ago when we were teaching in the classroom and noticing that our students were seemed distracted when we were lecturing. or trying to lead a class discussion um, because their attention was um, on their cell phones. Uh, and so this raised a sort of set of worries and anxieties that a lot of um, people had at the time that um, that our attention was being hijacked by our, our phones. And we proposed, oh, well, this is pretty interesting. The, the the press and the media are sort of addressing this question, but most of the um, concerns were couched in terms of the last couple decades since the emergence of uh, the internet. And we proposed, well, why don't we sort of historicize this problem and look back at the last century and a half uh, of of American history and see whether uh, Americans from earlier periods registered similar anxieties about the emerging technologies of their own period. And what we discovered is there were some interesting uh, parallels, but that the anxieties we had about our attention being hijacked uh, multiplied, that we should also be looking not just at the way um, attention was being hijacked, but the way perhaps um, our phones and our modern devices were creating, amplifying our loneliness, our narcissism, you know, our inability to tolerate boredom, perhaps they were fueling anger and also making us less capable of experiencing awe.
0: And one of the things that is clear from your book, that narcissism, vanity, affectation, they're not the preserve of our time, are they? We might be guilty of using filters, but there was a time when people used fake ankles. Could you talk us through how, when photography became widespread, how how people actually approached that medium?
4: Well, you know, um, we were really interested in the early years of photography and it really takes off on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1840s after being introduced in 1839. And when we were looking at popular press accounts, there were some people who thought photography would cure vanity because unlike previous portraits, which you paid for and in which the artist might smooth over, you know, unpretty parts of your face, the camera was supposed to be absolutely honest in what it took. But very quickly, um, people began to find ways to um, present themselves to best effect uh, in front of the camera. Sometimes they'd have poses with books or musical instruments or particular kinds of clothing to make them look more well-read or more talented or richer than they were. As you mentioned, sometimes people wanted slimmer body parts than they uh, actually possessed. So we found one account of a photographer who would um, tell women who wanted slender ankles to tie back, he would help them tie back their feet to the back of their chair and insert these carved wooden ankles that would slightly protrude from their dresses. Um, This worked fine, except when sometimes their real ankles crept into view and then you'd have four ankles in a photograph. So certainly um, there's a lot of uh, vanity as they would have called it then in in the 19th century as photography uh, spreads across the world.
0: Yeah so did every generation view their particular technological evolution with the same fear or lack of control that we seem to fear the internet or social media now with the online dominance in our world is it just the same as it ever was
4: we think it's um there are there are echoes but it's not the same and and one thing we argue in the book is that our emotions fundamentally change over time and so uh, for instance, today we worry, you know, is social media making us lonely? To be lonely in the 19th century, again, uh, both in America and the UK, um, was a different thing than to be lonely in 21st century, the 21st century digital world. Um, people found more redemption in being alone. In the 19th century, they called it solitude. They thought it might bring revelation or be a way that genius could be at work. It might make them better equipped. For society, whereas today we see um, loneliness as as uh, a pathology, as uh, an epidemic as something that can really harm your health. And so, you know, um, when we think about technology's effects on our emotions, um, we we need to realize those emotions themselves have changed over time. And so, in the 19th century, people did not necessarily rush to embrace the telegraph as quickly as we might have rushed to embrace mobile phones. So, our Our whole context for uh, adopting these technologies uh, differs from from century to century.
3: I think when we teach this to undergraduates, though, um, a lot of them are surprised at how many kind of parallels there are between the way people experience new technologies in the nineteenth uh, and how they do today. Uh, they're surprised to learn, for example, that uh, when the telegraph came in the nineteenth century, that uh, Americans were were worried about the data deluge and the way that these technologies were intruding into their lives, interrupting their their capacities to experience reverie and to sort of go back to the household and leave private lives that were relatively undisturbed by the rest of the world around them. Uh, So just as we worry today about our attention being hijacked, people in the 19th century registered similar anxieties
0: yeah, uh, the thing I liked about the book was it's not a uh, analysis of the, our behaviours and how that's changed. It is about that emotional side of our relationship with technology. Could you just talk to us a bit about what you discovered about teenagers and self-worth? It's a double edged sword for them because they want to be more available through some of the testimonies. They say that they want to be more out there, but leaving themselves out there leaves themselves open to criticism. So could you talk to us a bit about what you found in that space?
4: Yeah, we did interviews with um, people ranging from 18 to uh, their 80s. And when we talked to college students, so many of them told us about a a bind they faced. Um, They uh, desperately wanted to present themselves in the best light and get positive affirmation from friends and peers and family um, when they didn't get that affirmation or it didn't come in quite the quantities they wanted. Um, They felt downcast, and when they did get it, it made them happy, but it was such a fleeting feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was no alternative. There was no way out of this this bubble. There was no other way to get status or connection, Um, and it kept them kind of coming back for more um, and more um, with their feelings rising and falling, you know, throughout the day as they monitor their feeds.
0: Um, Luke, I I was particularly struck by, um, there was a chapter, I think it was the last chapter about anger, um, and there was another chapter that spoke about awe, perhaps one is diminishing and the other increasing. Can you take us through your thoughts on those two issues?
3: Yeah, um, often we don't sort of typically think of these uh, emotions in conjunction, but certainly today we're often worried uh, about the way that social media is triggering anger and that the whole sort of uh, business model of social media is based on trying to keep uh, people's eyeballs on the screen, and one way you do that is by provoking their anger. Uh, and you know, people propose different types of solutions, changing, um, you know, with the Facebook feed uh, so that um, it's not just optimized to provoke anger. But I don't think a, a solution that's that's often talked about is the way that perhaps we should think about the way that our technologies can either provoke awe or mute awe. And awe has some interesting potentials to perhaps make for a more, what's the word, social, pro-social type of sentiments in society. When you have awe, some theorists of this this emotion propose that it actually can make you more humble as you're looking out at the skies or at the technologies around you. That when you marvel at them, you see their powers, and you you sort of implicitly compare them to your own sort of more, your more dwarfed powers, and that this can create a sort of a, a sense of humility. And that perhaps this, in breeding that kind of humility, it can uh, be used as a tonic that might help us moderate our anger towards other people.
0: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Susan Matt and Luke Fernandez about how technology has changed our emotion over centuries. So, Susan, you might talk to us about um, our ability to pay attention to things now. Have we lost the ability to focus and is that something that's getting worse because of the evolution of technology or are we like a piece of elastic and we can just stretch ourselves infinitely?
4: Yeah, you know, one thing we found very interesting was In the 19th century, um, people thought their brains were finite and that they could only stuff so much information um, in their brains. And um, in the 20th and 21st century, uh, there's been a widespread belief that we have kind of infinite mental powers and we're only using a small portion of them. Um, At least in the United States, uh, 65% of Americans believe they're only using 10% of their brain. So um, they don't have much hesitation about thinking that they can take in all the information on their various you know internet browser tabs or you know simultaneously work and answer texts and update their instagram feeds um so whereas in the 19th century people believed in kind of a finite self and a finite amount of brain power today um there is a, a belief that maybe we can take it all in and um, we're kind of led to that position also because we've got, uh, a decreasing tolerance for boredom. Um, and so we're searching for ever more stimulation. Um, and we have this belief that we can assimilate everything we see before us on the screen when maybe, and this gets back to Luke's point, maybe we should have, uh, sometimes a, a more humble sense of self.
0: Well, I've I've maybe asked so many negative questions now, I have to ask something that's positive because during the pandemic, technology was a crucial part in keeping us entertained, connected and working and functioning. What was your assessment of the role of technology on a personal basis during the COVID-19 crisis?
3: Well, we certainly can, uh, I think we can all acknowledge that um, in many ways it played a positive role role in our lives, uh, that it allowed us to maintain uh, physical distance while still m- remaining connected, just as we are here uh, on this Zoom call, being able to connect with you. So we we certainly have to acknowledge those um, those positive aspects of, of these technologies.
4: And, uh, you know, as the um, looking at the negative side, perhaps, I mean, the one thing we do worry about, or one of many things we do worry about, is the fact that maybe we won't revert back to some of the face-to-face sociability that we had before. And if we think everything is just able to be attained through one click on the screen, um, will we go to stores? Will we go to theaters? Will we go to parks if we feel that we can um, live our lives through the screen? So once the pandemic is over, um, if that happens, um, I think there is a, a widespread anxiety about how much of our dependence on technology will remain and will we ever be able to return to um, a more mixed experience of live and virtual.
0: Well, it's a fascinating book, An Emotional Journey Through the Evolution of Technology. Thank you for sharing your story with us today and we'll leave it there. That's Susan Matt and Luke Fernandez. Thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you. Thank you.